Please take out your Bibles and open them to Genesis chapter 12. That will be our launching point this morning as we step into the text. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Red Pew Bible in the pew in front of you. You're certainly welcome to use it and keep it as a gift from us. We are walking through a series in the book of Genesis. And if you were here last week, we considered both the Tower of Babel found in Genesis 11 and the triumphal entry of Jesus found in all four Gospels. So if you wonder how we're going to tie Genesis into the Easter story, take heart, we will. And as we looked at last week as these two stories, we were challenged to answer the question, who is our king? Because it's if it is us, we will build a life around us, a life around our accomplishments, much like they did at the Tower of Babel. But if Jesus is our king, then we're called to make him the center of our lives, and it looks different. So this morning, as we step into Genesis 12, we're going to again see great parallels into the New Testament, kind of like they have the same author, which, of course, we believe they do, right? Thank you. To help us keep our context, the first 11 chapters of Genesis tell the story of the creation of the world. They give us Adam and Eve. They give us Cain and Abel. They give us Noah and the flood. We get all the way to the Tower of Babel. And what you see in those first 11 chapters is God's relationship with the world. First that he created it. Then he created us. And then in a real macro sense, what you see in those early chapters is the rise of sin, the rise of rebellion. That as God initiates with us, we quickly turn from him. We quickly try to establish ourselves. We quickly try to do what we want to do. And what you see is that no matter how God relates to us, you find this to be true throughout the scriptures. Regardless of how God tries to relate to us, we always try to do it our way. That's true with Adam and Eve eating the apple. It's true with Cain killing his brother. Men fall into sin what you find in that early part in Genesis is we fall into more and more grievous sin. So that when we get to chapter 12, it might seem absolutely. And if you don't know your Bible, this might be an astounding reality. When you come to Genesis 12, it seems like there is no one left who knows God at all. There is no one left who even worships him. And it might be surprising to find that in the scriptures. But we come to several places where that's true. And that despite all the different ways God intervenes to help correct our course, we wander away. So starting in Genesis 12, God starts to do a particularly interesting thing. And this is what he does. Rather than relating to the world... God begins to call a chosen people to himself. And we can't miss that because it's an epically important biblical theme. God calls a people to himself. And for God to call a chosen people to himself, he does so that he might bless them. And we can't miss this. We can't miss the and here. He might bless them and then use them to display his love his mercy, his kindness, and his redemption to the rest of mankind. It's true Old Testament, and it's true New Testament. And so God, in Genesis 12, in building a people of his own, starts with one man. And it starts in Genesis 12, in verse 1. Let's look at that. 
text says, now the Lord said to Abram. The text immediately gives us two characters. And who they are matters, right? The first one is God, but the word here is Yahweh. The word, the name Yahweh gets further developed as you move through the Pentateuch. I don't expect you to know it all. But what it tells us is that this is going to become the covenant name of God. And if that's language that doesn't hone in on your heart, what it should mean to you is that this is a God who intends to create promises with us. He intends to get very personal with us, and he intends to keep his end of the deal regardless of the fact that we're unfaithful. It's an intensely personal name. And the second character that comes in is a man named Abram. And you might have heard of Abram. In chapter 17, God will change his name to Abraham. That name I'm sure you know. And Abraham is not just a forefather to Christianity, but also to Judaism and Islam. He's kind of a famous guy. So when he shows up in Scripture for the first time in Genesis 12, what do you suppose his background is? Who is this forefather of our faith? Well, to get that, we need to scoot back a couple of verses into chapter 11. Listen to how Moses describes Abram. He said, now these are the generations of Terah. If you've been with us in this series, this word generations is a Hebrew word, toledot. It's used by Moses to show section breaks. This is an important new section. He's starting a section on Abraham. So he writes, Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of Chaldeans. These details will matter. At first they come to us like, oh good, a genealogy, great. Skip it. But what we'll find is, is this will help us as we move along in the story of Genesis to see why Lot follows Abram. But we'll keep going. Verse 29. And Abram and Nahor took wives. And the name of Abram's wife was Sarah. And the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarah was barren. She had no child. That too we'll come back to as it will play a major role in this story. Verse 31, Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth from the Ur of Chaldeans to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, having just walked you through five of probably the most boring verses you're going to read this morning, I want you to know that it tells us some things about Abram. Obviously, it gives us his family tree. It tells us where he's from. He's from the Ur of Chaldeans and that he settled his family in Haran. And that's about it. Joshua 24 adds another important detail. This is what Joshua, looking back, will say of Abram. Joshua 24, 2. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. What the book of Joshua helps to make clear about Abram is that he was an idolater. That is, he worshipped false gods. 
Which is to say that he's not the kind of guy that you'd expect God to show up and start relating to, would you? In fact, you'd kind of think God appears to people who are kind of doing it right. People who are kind of following the rules. People who are kind of good enough. And you'd find in Scripture that that's hardly ever the case. God tends to pursue and chase guys who are going the absolute wrong direction. That's what we find here. He's worshiping. He's serving false gods. He's living about as far away as you can get from the one true God. And yet, according to the text, God initiates a relationship with this pagan idolater. Listen to what the text says as we continue in verse 1. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The Lord starts the conversation. He initiates a relationship with a total pagan man, and he says a number of things, most of which can be centered around this idea. I have a plan for your life. I'm calling you to follow me. And in following me, I want to bless you. And I want to make you a blessing. And if you look closely enough, you should see that this is not an unconditional promise. We'll see unconditional promises put before Abraham later, but this one is not unconditional. It requires a response. Look back at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. The Lord tells Abram, I have a plan for your life. I want you to follow me. I want you to, I want to bless you. I want to bless you in such an overwhelming way that you become a blessing. But to receive that, you're going to have to let go of some things. Listen to what God asks from Abram. He says, I want you to leave your country. I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave your clan. That's what it means. I want you to leave your father's house. Now, in our culture, some of those things don't mean anything. We don't live in clans, and most of us are willing to move, or at least want to, or have to move far from our families. But that was hardly the case here. What, in essence, God is asking Abraham is, I want you to give up everything. I want you to be willing to give it all up. Because in Abram's world, that's exactly what he's asking him. For to give up your family, to give up your family connections, to give up your family land means absolutely everything because it would be your life, it would be your social structure, and it would be your means of providing for yourself. God calls him to give up absolutely everything. And we need to hear that. And we need to see that there's a call to go. Because what Abram does with this will matter. Because Abram could hear those words and he could say, that is so good. I hear that. Man, I should go and become a blessing. And he could have sat in Haran his whole life thinking that's a great promise that God has. 
But it wouldn't have been sufficient. It wouldn't have been what he was called to do. It wouldn't have been obedient. For God says, I want to make you a great nation. God says, I'm going to call you to give up your country, but I need you to know I have something far better for you. God says, I will bless you and I will make your name great. And you need to know that that stands in direct contrast to what we find in Genesis 11, when people say, I want to make my name great. It's this prideful, egotistical statement. I want to be somebody. What God says is, that's not your job. It's not who you're called to be. You're called to submit yourself to me and I, I'll exalt you. That'll be what I will do. I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing. God tells him, you're worried about leaving your family. You're worried about leaving your family's name. But I have something even better for you. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And it says a lot if you lean into the text. Because if you're to give up your country, if you're to give up your clan, if you're to give up your family and your family land, you feel exposed. And what God says in this verse is, I will be your protection. I will be your watch guard. I will be your provider. And it's such a way that all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The entire earth will be blessed by you. And so what does a pagan idolater do when God calls? He follows him. Look at verse 4. So Abram went. As the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. There is never, ever an age at which you cannot repent and turn back. 75 years old, Abram turns, walks away from his life to be obedient to God. The New Testament book of Hebrews, it says of Abram, by the way, which we'll refer to him as Abraham. This is what the book of Hebrews says of Abram. It says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was to go. And by faith he went to live in that land of promise as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. What the author of the book of Hebrews attributes to Abram is that his willingness to obey God was faith. It was a faith response that he would step out and say, God, I will let go of everything and I will follow you no matter the cost. And Abram knew nothing of God beforehand. He worshipped false gods. He believed false promises. And yet when God shows up and calls him, he believed. He believed and he obeyed when God called him out. Paul 
writing in the book of Romans. By the way, we're popping back and forth in the Bible. If you don't know your Bible well, just keep a watch on page numbers as we move from page 8 to page 1,000 to page 400, something back to the thousands. We're wanting you to see the message of the Scriptures all the way through is consistent, right? That's why we're taking you Old Testament into New Testament and back and forth. Paul writes in the book of Romans, chapter 4, this is what he adds to the story of Abram. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has done something to boast about, but not before God. What Paul's writing about is why did God call out Abram? Did God look at Abram and say, hey, you're a good guy. You're good enough. You're earning my favor. Absolutely not, right? We've heard his whole story according to the scripture. He's a total pagan. He's an idolater. He didn't have a good work to save his life. He worshiped false gods. So what's going on? Verse 3, what's Paul saying? For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is, faith is counted to him as righteousness. What Paul would shine a great spotlight on is this the reality of the truth that the only good thing that Abram did was believe. God didn't call him out because he was good enough. He didn't seek him out because he had potential. He did not earn it because you cannot earn it. To the one who works, verse 4, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. You cannot earn salvation. You cannot earn righteousness. It is only granted to those who believe. Listen to verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Friends, what the scripture would make plain and clear is before Christ, it doesn't matter if you stole cookies or hand grenades, you were guilty. And degree of guilt does not matter a single iota. Some of us were absolutely neck deep and filthy in our sin. And some of us said darn a couple of extra times. And according to the scriptures, it does not matter. For if you are guilty of breaking even one part of the law, you're guilty of breaking all of it. The only one who can grant you the righteousness that you need to show up before a holy God is Jesus Christ. And the only way you get that is by believing in him. Friends, if you believe in Jesus, if you profess him as Lord, that's what matters. That's his faith. It's his belief that mattered. It's his faith that credited him righteousness. Six chapters later in the book of Romans, Paul will make that clear. And further, he'll make it clear that that offer is still available. Romans 10 verse 9. 
If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if you were here last week, please tie that back to last week's message. If you confess that Jesus is Lord, he is the king. He can call me to do anything. I'll go anywhere. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Friends, if you believe in Jesus, if you profess him as Lord, if he says go and you're willing to follow, that's not a cheap commitment. See, we got to move past this idea in a church that getting sprinkled once when you're like six months old is enough. We've got to move past this reality that when you're 12, you walk down the aisle, but your life has never looked differently that that might be enough. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And much like Abram, your faith will be accounted as righteousness. For if you hear the story of Abram or any other hero from the Old Testament, you need to know this. You'll hear this from this pulpit as we continue to work through the book of Genesis that every time we come to these guys, be it Abraham or Noah or Isaac or Moses, the call of the text is not to be like them. If it is that, you miss the point. Because they're not the exemplars. They're not the one. They only serve to point to the one. So if you wonder what the life of Abram should speak to you at a time like this, Abram would tell you to respond to the one who calls. Friends, if you're here this morning and you've never responded to God, if you've never turned to him and believed in a saving way, you've never confessed him as Lord. Much like in the story of Abram, we believe that God is calling to you this morning. For heaven's sake, you showed up at church on Easter. God is calling you, and he's asking you to follow him, not knowing where it might take you, not knowing what it might cost you but being willing to trust him with absolutely everything. And you got to know that's a crazy ask, right? Who knows what God would put before you? And contextually, this won't make sense, but I live in Moorhead, Minnesota. To my whole family, they think I'm nuts. They're all in Colorado and Oklahoma and Texas. You live where? This knows how much? Exactly. But the call to follow Jesus is a call to surrender, to confess that he is the Lord and that he is the king. And he's calling you to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. And that is the very truth that we're professing on Easter morning. That on Good Friday, Jesus was crucified in our place for our sins. Because our actions, we couldn't earn it. There was a price to be paid, and Christ paid it. And so he died, he was buried, and on the third day, on Sunday morning, he rose from the grave. The grave was empty, and Jesus is alive. And friends, if Christ is alive, that means he's defeated sin. And if Christ is alive, that means he's defeated death. 
And what that tells us, and there's absolutely nothing in our lives that he cannot forgive. There's nothing in our lives that he cannot rebuild. There's nothing in our lives that he cannot resurrect. He's calling us to believe. And we must respond. We must go. We must believe. We must respond to what he's asking us to do. We must lean in and believe and trust him, confessing him and believing in him. And we must understand that to not do that is a response. We must understand to not believe, to not confess, to not give our lives over is a response. Friends, he's calling us because he desires to bless us and to make us a blessing. Friends, if you are here with us this morning and you've confessed that Jesus is Lord, if you've believed that God has raised him from the dead, thus you have been saved Allow me this morning to remind you of 1 Corinthians 15, 20 and following. This is what Paul writes to the church in Corinth. It says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He would say before that, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, this is all fruitless. It's all meaningless. We're actually stupid for gathering. But because he has died, because he has been raised from the dead, he would go on to tell us. But because Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, meaning he'll come back and he will resurrect us too. Verse 21, for as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Friends, we need to be reminded that if we have believed in him, if we've professed him, that in our going, in our obedience to God, that we've been made alive. That's actually the second great imperative that the Lord gave Abram to tie all the way back to Genesis 12. God says to Abram, I've blessed you so that you might be a blessing. He doesn't say, I've blessed you so that you can be a trophy. He does not say, I've blessed you so that you can be an example. So people could just look at, oh, aren't they nice? Aren't they good people? He leans in and says, I've blessed you so that you might be a blessing. And if you've ever wondered why the New Testament follows the Old Testament, if we walk through the Old Testament, you'd figure out that people never got that second part. They never went out. They never saw to it that the Gentiles saw the graciousness of God. Christ has called us to himself to bless us. And in doing so, he's given us every spiritual blessing, according to Ephesians chapter 1. He's giving us everything we need for life and godliness. So the call is to go and live alive. Pointing to the one who gives life. Friends, having joined us this morning, we want to be exhorted. We want to be challenged by the life of Abram, not to be like him, but to be like the one he points to. 
That we would find a full and a rich and a deep and a true salvation in Jesus Christ who forgives all of our sins and it makes us something we could never be on our own so that we might live a life that points to him. But we might give it all away. And finally, if you wonder what happens to Abram, if you wonder if he goes on to live a perfect, sin-free, trouble-free life, well, then I'd encourage you to come back next week as we continue in the book of Genesis to see that the life of faith is not simple and it's not easy and it's not without its ups and downs and it's not without its peaks and its valleys and it certainly has those moments when we fall flat on our face. Let me pray for us. Oh, gracious Father, thank you for your Son. That there's not a single person in this room who is good. There's not a person in this room who's sin-free. There's not a person in this room who's figured out life well enough to be approved by you. Father, for all of us, every single one of us sins, has sinned, will sin, and struggles with sin. And we can act like we've got our lives together, but God, you know that that's just a fake reality. You know that that's a lie. Father, you know the struggles of every soul in this room. And you know all the ways which we wrestle through that and try to find ways to hide it and find ways to resolve it. And Father, I pray that what would be pointed out this morning is that the ways of men will never be sufficient and that the person of Christ always will be. I pray, Father, that you would remind us of the fullness and the richness of the death of Jesus Christ to forgive all of our sins. And I pray, Father, you'd remind us of the fullness and the richness and the depth of his resurrection. That it was a real and a true event. And because Christ is alive, you can redeem us, you can reconcile us, you can rebuild us, you can resurrect us. And I pray all the more we would yield ourselves to you fully, that you would have your way in us. Father, I pray this morning that if those here who have never responded to you, that you would put a heavy burden on them. Father, that they would be called to you. That they would know, that they would know in their heart, Father, that you are seeking after them, that you love them, and that you sent your son to die for them, and that they would know that they have to respond to that call. Thank you for the sufficiency of Christ. For he is all that we need. Be with us this morning as we continue to worship. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.